0: It is so genuinely good to be with you guys. Uh, I love what the Lord's doing with Advance. Um, One of the things I love about this movement is that it's really easy to just kind of divorce beautiful tensions that we find in the scripture. And in Jesus, we see Christ inhabiting wonderful tensions, that he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And we see Jesus enabling a more robust marriage of things that we like to divorce and separate. Um, For instance, spirit and word. Like, why would you wanna choose between a living relationship with the living God, the third person of the Trinity, and the word that he inspired and wrote to reveal the beauty of that God? Why would you wanna choose, right? And one of the things that is reflected in your love for tension is just the mission of this movement, and that's planting and strengthening churches. And what tends to happen is we either get really excited about strengthening churches, And that's the work of sanctification, right? That's the work of going deeper in the gospel. Or we get really excited about planting churches and that's mission out there. That's being really passionate and really full of vision to see more nations reached and more multiplication. But what's so beautiful in scripture is that we need both. We need depth and we need width. And what's so awesome is that those things actually feed into each other right? The idea of planting churches requires that the saints have a capacity for suffering and a depth of soul in the knowledge of the gospel that enables us to go and risk. See, Jesus wants to push back darkness in the nations out there, right? And in our cities. He wants to push back darkness through the proclamation of the gospel and through the demonstration of his kingdom through the good deeds of the saints. But let's also not forget that he wants to push back the darkness that's in here, Right? Like I want to be a part of pushing back darkness in my city, but I also want those places of my soul and my mind that hide in the shadows to be illuminated by the grace of God. I want to bring those into the light so that I can be changed. And so with that in mind, I'm going to talk about something that is missional. It is missional to grow in the health of your soul. It is missional. It is missional to go deeper in the gospel. It is missional to realize the grace of God and find delight in the gospel in moments of sorrow and sadness. So today we're gonna talk about a healthy soul, developing a healthier soul by the grace of God. And I wanna begin with a dual admission that is stating the obvious that I forget all the time. And the dual admission is this, you have a soul and the soul that you have is a merely human soul right? So l- let me say that again. You have a soul, and what that means is you are, you are material and immaterial, and you're not a machine. Having a soul means that you're not just a widget in the plan of God. You're not just a tool in the hands of God. You are an immortal image bearer of the Most High God. And, and I think what tends to happen for a lot of us in leadership is we, in this culture of drivenness and this culture of technology, what starts to happen is we start to look at ourselves as productivity machines who only have value and dignity and worth in relation to how much stuff we can get done. And we become obsessed with things like seven techniques to be more productive or eight different ways that you can advance your agenda in the week and reclaim more of your time. And we start looking at ourselves almost like we're a part of an assembly line process in the kingdom of God instead of human beings. And I just want to begin this by saying, look, like the, the preacher to Israel, Solomon, in Ecclesiastes reminds us that there's a time for everything under the sun. It's good to be productive. It's good to go to work and put in a real day. It's good to go home having a sense of having labored together in the gospel with other believers, but it's also good to rest. It's good to feast, and it's good to fast. It's good to weep. It's good to laugh. And I think what starts to happen for many of us is that we start to look at ourselves as machines that are just being used by God, and we actually become dehumanized in our leadership. And can I just say, like, there's nothing inspiring about a leader who's disconnected from their soul, who thinks that their only contribution is what they can get done out there. Like, I'm not inspired by a leader that can't enjoy music and creation and making love to his wife, being present with his children. You want to show an inspirational leader, show a leader that has embraced his soul and the work of the gospel to transform it, to bring glory to God, not just with great exploits out there. Like, thank God for preaching. Thank God for church planting. Thank God that we get to serve the poor in our cities. But thank God that we also get to glorify him by feasting by laughing, by being human beings, by being creative. So you have a soul, you do have a soul. You're not a machine. And if you're trying to operate as if you were a machine, you're actually flattening out what it means to be a human being. Now, in addition, the the other admission we have to make is that you have a soul and it's a human soul. And and here's what I mean by that. Um, That first model of leadership is what we'll just call mechanical. It's mechanized. It's like, I'm just a tool in God's belt and I need to disconnect from my heart and disconnect from my feelings and numb out what's going on in here and drown out the voices in here by busyness and activity, the other model is to start to believe that we're actually divine, that we are like God in ways that God never created us to be like him. Like, let's go back to the first lie for just a second. Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5, the serpent said to the woman, he will not surely die, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't it ironic that Adam and Eve as image bearers of God were already like God in the ways appropriate to human beings? Uh, Theologians talk about the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. And the communicable attributes of God are the ways in which we reflect God and are like God as image bearers. Those are things like the capacity to be relational, the ability to love, the ability to hate, the ability to show mercy, the ability to do good. These are ways in which we were made to be like God. But then we're also made to be human beings. And what that means is that we're never designed to be like God in his incommunicable attributes. Those are the ways in which God is other. He's different than you and me. And what happens in the garden is Satan tempts Adam and Eve. He tempts them to try to throw off the good and beautiful boundaries that God put on humanity, not to repress them, but to protect their freedom. And so we do the same thing. And here's what I mean. Um, God is omnipotent. He has all power. And one of the lies I start to believe is that like God, I'm omnipotent and I can change people. That I can control circumstances that I can have this beautiful reformed soteriology that gives God all the credit for salvation and at the same time act as if it's my responsibility to control the inner workings of another human being. Like, I can't change anybody. Only God can change people. Leadership becomes so exhausting when we throw off the good and beautiful boundaries that God put on humanity to merely be human beings. Like, God is omnipresent, that means that he's everywhere all at once. Right now, God's working in the farthest reaches of Southeast Asia, and he's working in this room, and it's the same personal God. You and I are limited. We're not omnipresent, and yet we try to be. And here's what I mean. Like, when we're obsessed with these things, that's a way in which we're not fully present with each other, we're not fully present with God, but we're actually trying to pretend as if we can see everything and be everywhere instead of practicing the boundaries of God and inhabiting space as a limited being. When we're urban church planners, instead of inhabiting that space and being limited to one time in one place, we start to fantasize about being rural church planners in the country. And if you're a rural church planter in the country, you might be fantasizing about how much better it would be if you lived in the city. (laughs) If If you're married, some married people start fantasizing about the freedoms of singleness. And if you're single, you might be fantasizing about how great it'll be when you get married. What's fascinating about all of that is that's a way in which limited human beings try to pretend that we can throw off God's good boundaries to be limited in a place and actually offer people the most beautiful thing that image bearers of God can offer. That's gospel-centered, peaceful presence. Like, when you sit down with another human being and you embrace the fact that you can only be in one place at one time, in one spot, you're actually giving them something really glorious and beautiful, you're giving of yourself. In addition, we buy into the lie that we're omniscient like God, that we can know everything. What starts to happen is we throw off the boundaries of our limitation and we start obsessing about what we should have done and didn't do or the next four decisions down the road and we start acting as if we can control knowledge and truth if we can just get enough good information. The truth is it's so beautiful and liberating to stand up and say in humility, I am a human being. I'm not a machine in leadership. My value and worth is not determined by my productivity in an 8-hour workday. And I'm not divine. I am a limited, finite human being who bears the image of God in the ways appropriate, not in the ways inappropriate. Zach Eswine writes about this well. Here's what he says in his fantastic book, The Imperfect Pastor. He says, at a conference, I preach Christ for you with a hemorrhoid. Well, my books are on sale in the hallway. What is more, I may have seen myself in my children's eyes this morning and had to ask their forgiveness for something the day before. Or maybe I'm still blind as I speak to you regarding what my wife or my children or my congregation still desperately need me to see. When I visit you in the hospital, I had to tie my shoes that morning or figure out which sweater made me look a bit slimmer, it's black, or (laughs) cry out to God with my own doubts as you hurt and I have no answer why. When you've been changed by grace through something I said or wrote, i likely had a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast or enjoy the sound of the owl that visits our place. Therefore, as we begin to think about desires we need to cry from the rooftops that pastoral ministry is creaturely. A pastor is a human being. I believe that Christian life and ministry are an apprenticeship with Jesus towards recovering our humanity and through his spirit, helping our neighbors do the same. All of this is for, through, by, with, and in him for the glory of God. See, if we're gonna have a healthy soul, we need to be able to say with John the baptizer, I'm not the Christ. He's God and I'm not. He's the head of the church and I'm not. He's the all wise one. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's the one that holds creation together. I am a part of that creation. We need to be able to say with the apostle Paul who despite all of his incredible gifts, And the power and anointing that he walked in, we need to be able to say with him, it's good to boast in my weakness. It's good to embrace my limitations as a human being. And sometimes with Job, we need to just put our hands over our mouths and be silent. So today with that in mind, what I wanna do is just talk about how we can embrace our human souls a little better. In light of the gospel, how can we be human beings, not machines, human beings, not little gods, how can we be human beings with souls? And so take your Bible and flip over to the 42nd Psalm. If you want to develop depth of soul, great place to go is the Psalms. Churches with soul think about the Psalms. Because they pull us out of pretending and playing games with God and one another and remind us that the gospel gets enfleshed in Jesus and brought to actual human beings with problems. So, four realities about your soul. Four realities. Number one, your soul is very thirsty. Your soul is very thirsty. Look at the 42nd Psalm, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, let's stop here for just a second. I think what happens in evangelicalism is we read this verse and we think it looks more like a Thomas Kincaid painting than Thomas Kincaid's life. And here's what I mean. Uh, if you've never been into a large chain of Christian bookstores, you might not have seen a Thomas Kincaid painting. If you've ever been in one of those stores, you've seen his paintings. And the thing about all of his paintings is that they are... They are extremely sentimental portrayals of reality. So if Thomas Kincaid painted this, it would be a beautiful deer backlit by a stream with flowing leaves and the light falling just right on the deer. We read this verse and we think, oh, Christianity's like a Thomas Kincaid painting. I'm like a deer and I'm a little thirsty and the woods are there and the water's right here and the leaves are blowing in the wind and the light is fading down and falling just so on the deer's skin. But here's the problem, like Thomas Kincaid's life didn't look like his paintings. Thomas Kincaid was a deeply troubled man. Thomas Kincaid had a reekly thirsty soul. Once he got drunk at Siegfried and Roy. Like he ended up, he ended up after a life of abusing alcohol and Valium, dying from extreme intoxication. I just want to say, as Christians, we can read a verse like this and we can turn it into a Thomas Kincaid painting instead of realizing that our souls, like Thomas Kincaid, are really desperate. This is not the psalmist saying the Christian life is bucolic and easy and sentimental. Here's what he's saying. Human beings are really thirsty creatures. Our souls are desperate for God. Our souls are like desire devices that point at all kinds of created things and ask those created things to answer the deepest longings of our heart and soul and because of that we walk around really restless. St Augustine said this, I believe that the soul's proper abode, to put it that way, and its homeland is God himself by which it is being created. In the beginning, God creates man and woman, and he puts them in a garden, and he makes them relational beings to actually commune with the living God. The idea being that they were to enjoy creation and enjoy relationships, but the fountain of life would be God himself, and they would drink deeply of him. So in the beginning, God doesn't just create life as something external to him. He actually is life. We were made to feast on him and to enjoy him. And because of sin, the disconnect from that fountain of life has left us with homeless souls that wander and are angsty and restless and forget the truth of what we were actually made for. Now, certainly Jesus comes and he becomes our home. And he brings us back into fellowship with the Father. But let's not be too quick to read over this text. The psalmist here is a Christian. He's a believer. He's a part of the covenant people of God. He's a partaker of grace, and yet he's honest. Hey, like a famished deer that's gonna die of dehydration. That's how my soul is right now. Can we just stop and just say, as leaders, as pastors, as people that are those called to stand up front in front of groups of people, can we just say together in the safety of this room, we're as thirsty as anybody else. (laughs) Nobody needs the gospel more than you and me. Nobody needs to drink deeply of the grace and mercy of God more than you and me. In fact, in some ways, I think God calls particularly desperate people to the ministry so that we have to be reminded all the time. (laughs) Secondly, not only is your soul thirsty, but your soul is relational. The very essence of your soul is relational. Look at verse three. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Here's what's fascinating in this text. Because God is not a solitary God, Because eternally, our one God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion because the Father delights in pouring out his delight on the Son and the Son delights in pouring out his delight in the Father and the Spirit of God is working between Father and Son because this is how God has always existed as a relational being. He made us in his image. Therefore, listen, a soul is designed actually pour out. This pouring out of his soul in this text is one of the most relational things that we can possibly do. See, he pours out his text to God and he pours out his text or this text to the covenant community. And as he's pouring out this text, what's happening is instead of pretending that he can be a solitary being and bottle his soul, he knows that the soul has to find its expression in relationship. We were made for communion with God. We were made for communion with each other. Therefore, a soul that doesn't get poured out is a soul that actually is stagnating inside of our own bodies. You were made to be able to pour out your soul. And can we just say, there's so many beautiful ways of doing that. Um, I've enjoyed pouring out my soul with you over the last two days. As we sing, as we pray, as we break bread, but in this text, can we just note that sometimes the way the soul needs to be poured out is in sorrow and grief. Sometimes the soul needs to be poured out in mourning, which is a relational experience with God and others in which we take the pain and the loss and the grief and the dreams that have died and the things that we thought would happen that didn't happen, and instead of stuffing them like we can be solitary beings and experience life, we actually need to pour out those things to God and pour out those things to the covenant community. Grief and mourning are a pouring out. The scripture says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Scripture says that he comforts those who are brokenhearted. In vulnerable communion with God, in a pouring out that's risky, we actually experience the essence of a human soul, which is relational. A few minutes ago, we had a prophetic sense that there's people in here feeling desperate and hurting, and we asked people to raise their hands. That is so contrary to our culture where we say leaders are those that have all the answers and leaders are those that don't grieve and leaders are those that have it all together. The scripture says something so different than that. The scripture says leaders are relational beings who are designed by God to pour out their soul to him and to one another in honest communal relationship. We were made to be poured out. This leads us to the third third relational reality of our soul. And that's this, Um, your soul is thirsty and your soul is relational and your soul also needs to be interrogated. Your soul needs to be interrogated. Look at verse five. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? In our culture, if you have a conversation with your soul, we think you're crazy. In biblical culture, they think you're crazy if you don't. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls and all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The depth of the soul needs to actually be plumbed and discerned the soul needs to be interrogated. And that means we actually have to learn to speak the language of the soul, which again and again, in the writings of not just the New Testament and Old Testament authors, but throughout the history of the church, Augustine and Calvin and and Edwards, again and again, they point out that the language of the soul is the language of desire and the language of feeling. It's the language of desire and it's the language of feeling. Now, I know you're getting nervous because we live in this cultural moment where our culture worships feelings and our culture worships desires. We say, in essence, whatever you feel is the highest reality. Do what you feel. And whatever you want is your right. Take what you want. But I think what we've done in evangelical circles is we've seen how completely sinful Our culture relates to their desires and feelings and we've just gone the other direction and we've actually divorced ourselves from our desires and our feelings. We're not giving room for the gift of emotion and desire that Jesus brings back into us through his resurrecting life. We don't know how to discern discern our souls. We don't know how to listen to the voice of our soul. And in fact, here's the reality for many of us Your soul is estranged, disconnected, and orphaned from you. Your soul is separated, and you don't have a relationship with the depth of your being, and you don't know how to ask your soul questions. You don't know how to interrogate your soul, and because of that, what you have inside of you is a massive amount of anxiety and frustration and fear that you don't know how to process that leads to all kinds of lack of health in the way that we lead. The soul needs to be interrogated. We need to actually learn to not worship our feelings, but see our feelings as actually good gifts from God that lead to an invitation with his grace and mercy. See, I know we think there's only a couple of good emotions. It's just gladness. It's just that's the good one. And <laughs> Sadness and loneliness and anger and all of those other feelings that God's given us, those really weren't from God, that stuff that happened at the fall. I just don't think that's true. I think that every emotion God gave you can lead towards sinful activity and behavior, but it can also be a place in which you meet with the living God to be changed by him. Take loneliness as an example. Chip Dodd, in his fantastic book, The Voice of the Heart, he writes this. Loneliness renders renders us vulnerable to our hunger. Can we just stop there and say, has it ever occurred to you that loneliness is a gift from the living God? Maybe, maybe not. Look what he says. Loneliness renders us vulnerable to our hunger for emotional and spiritual fulfillment. It exposes us to all of our relational needs But in a world that screams negatively about dependency and glorifies self-sufficiency, loneliness is the feeling that we work hardest to avoid. The irony is that the more we work to avoid it, the more it occurs. And the more we work to hide it, the more we miss out on life. See, even in a really dark place like sensing overwhelming loneliness, there's an invitation from the living God to acknowledge as you interrogate your soul that you were made for relationship. You were made to walk with God and you were made to walk with people and the gift of loneliness is a reminder that you can't have a solitary life and honor and glorify a Trinitarian God. Sadness is an invitation to mourning that you might be comforted. Anger is an invitation from the living God sometimes to obedient action and sometimes to recognize the reality of danger. Fear is a gift from the living God that the scripture says can be the beginning of wisdom when it's the fear of God. It shows you what you value. It shows you what you want more than anything else that you might bring that to God and process and say, maybe this is an idol. Maybe this is a good gift, but I'm afraid of losing this. And it's making me really, really angry right now. To have a soul that's healthy is to have a soul that's interrogated. Now, don't get me wrong. This is a this is a church planting movement that we're a part of, right? Like this is, this is about strengthening and planting churches. So I'm not suggesting that you spend the rest of your life as a contemplative hermit in the desert. But I am saying, if you're gonna faithfully follow Jesus on mission, you can't faithfully follow Jesus and see what he wants you to see and walk out what he wants you to walk out with a soul that's been orphaned and divorced from the rest of your life you're a feeling being, you're a relational being, you're a thirsty being. And that's actually part of what it means to be a human being in leadership. And this leads us to the great reality. The soul is thirsty. The soul is relational. The soul must be interrogated. And finally, number four, your soul needs to be reminded of its hope and anger. You interrogate your soul not to worship whatever the desiring desires and feelings are. You interrogate your soul to understand yourself and God, which Calvin said, go together. And you interrogate your soul that you might remind your soul of its hope and anchor. Look at verse eight. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What a fascinating text of scripture. This passage we just read is book ended with the steadfast love of God. And on the other end of the book end is the hope that we have in God. And in the middle are all of these wrestlings with have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? Are you there? Do you care? What we see in this text, what we see in this text, is that human wrestling with the goodness of God and his grace demands that in the midst of our questions and isolation and loss and grief and loneliness that we bring those feelings to God in light of his steadfast love and the enduring eternal hope that we have in Jesus. Here's what I mean. When my soul is downcast, I need to return to these truths, the covenantal love of God. That's what it means to be steadfast. It means his love is not up and down. His love is not withheld from his people when they don't perform exactly as he wants them to perform. His love is not tied to you being a machine that gets X amount done. His love is steadfast because his covenant is steadfast. This means, think about these words, you were foreloved before the foundation of the world. Foreloved. He put his... Steadfast love on you before he hung the moon and the stars. Yes, your enemy says, Where is your God? Yes, sometimes we say, Have you forsaken me? But here's the breathtaking irony because Jesus was forsaken, you can't be forsaken. You've been adopted, you've been chosen, you've been justified, you've been ransomed, you've been redeemed, you've been sealed. The idea of preaching the gospel to ourselves, hear me, is not just an intellectual exercise, In many of our circles, we say, we gotta preach the gospel to ourselves, And that's simply reminding ourselves of truths that become abstract and disconnected from the relational reality of our souls. Preaching the gospel to yourself is grabbing the weighty and glorious news of God's steadfast love in Jesus and not allowing it to simply be abstract doctrine, but pulling it in to the depths of your need as a human being whose soul is thirsty saying in the midst of your desperation, this is how I feel, God, but this is what I know to be ultimately true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He's placed his covenantal love on me. He's chosen me. He can't unchoose me. He's adopted me and he calls me a son. And though he scourged me, his scourging is the loving discipline of a father that's creating in me a greater depth and a greater beauty to the glory of his name. It's his steadfast love and it's his eternal hope. His eternal hope means, yeah, in this moment, your soul does feel a bit homeless because you have exceedingly great and precious promises that you're believing by faith. And yes, praise be to God that we have the Holy Spirit who's the spirit of adoption. And there's those moments where you sense like the weight and the beauty of the gospel in the depth of your being, but there's also those moments where it's, have you forgotten me? Did you lead me to plant this church just that you could kill me? <laughs> Did you bring me into this family just so that you could expose me and break me? What's the eternal hope that we have? Well, it's, it's that the work of Jesus is real for you today. It's real for you. It's real. Right now, it's real. No matter how you feel, it's real. His forgiveness is real. His blood is real. His choosing of you before the foundation of the world is real. The sending of the Spirit to be the seal and the stamp of his promises is real. But it's also, it's now, but it's also coming. And this eternal hope means that there will be a day where your soul finds its permanent residence in the very presence of the living God, and you'll behold him, and faith will become sight. And your soul needs to be reminded of that often. This is one of my favorite parts of scripture. You know it well. Romans 8, verse 31. Let's read this to our souls together. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, Yes, we're in this moment where there's questions and there's feelings and there's grief and there's loss and we need to listen to the voice of our soul and the desires and feelings that it's expressing. But with that, we've got to bookend it with steadfast love and eternal hope. Soul, here's what I want to remind you of today. Here's what I want you to drink of today. Here's how I want you to come and be full and satisfied in the God of all mercy and grace today. So as I close this, what I'd love to do is pray for you and I'd love for you to close your eyes and I want to ask you some questions to help you interrogate your soul and I want to encourage you as we break out throughout the rest of the day to not just go about your day without digging into how do you need to pour out your soul to God and each other. Here are the questions For Take a second, close your eyes, quiet your heart and listen to these. Question one Have you tried to become a machine instead of a human being with a soul? Are you trying to be a mom machine? And all the responsibilities and tasks and pressure are crushing you because you're relating to yourself as just a tool that has to get stuff done? Are you a pastor machine? There's no time for communion with God or people or play or rest or mourning. Have you tried to be a God? To throw off your human limitations which are for your freedom because you've believed the lie of the serpent. Trying to control your life and your circumstances and your future and your health and your kids and your church. It's exhausting because you're not God. Or you're fantasizing about the future of your church or the past of your church or a different city or a different church or a different group of saints to pastor and lead in love. All such fantasy is trying to be God because you're limited to one place at one time. This is your place. This is your moment. Thirdly, what is your soul saying and what is the invitation of God? Don't just gloss over the sadness of your soul. Interrogate it. Bring it to God. Are you mourning? Are you grieving? Is there gladness today? Can you pour out your soul in gladness to your brothers and sisters, or do you need to pour out your soul in sadness to your brothers and sisters? Is there anger? Is there shame? Is there guilt? Is there loneliness? Is there fear? Is there gladness? Is there sadness? What's the voice of your soul saying, and how can you take the voice of your soul to the living God and bring it to him as an invitation. fourthly, when did you last pour out your soul? Like, when did you last pour out your soul? I'm not talking about sermon prep. I'm not talking about trite conversations about numbers and policy and procedure and the last cool book you read. talking about when's the last time that before the living God you poured out your soul and before another relational human being you actually poured out your soul? Some of you, it might be terrifying to think of what would happen if you actually owned the relational soul that God's given you. Everything might fall apart. It might be chaotic. It might be really horrible. Like there's so much grief in there. If I let it out, what'll happen? Well, friends, the steadfast love of the Lord and the eternal hope of God is real and sufficient. Some of us desperately need to receive permission as leaders to mourn and be human beings. Some of you are deeply sad because you planted a church and it has not gone the way you wanted it to go. There's an invitation there from God. Some of you are not who you thought you would be when you were gonna grow up. That's a conversation that needs to be had with the living God. God, bless these men and women. Bless them and keep them. May advance go deep and may it go wide. May their churches be marked by a depth of gospel-saturated, gospel-driven, spirit-filled affection for the living God and a willingness to be honest and vulnerable with God and each other. May they go wide God, may you make them fruitful. Would you plant more churches than what we dreamed of? Would you save the lost? Would you shake our cities? Would you move in Africa and move, move in the Middle East and move in Asia and move in Europe and move in North America? And God, would you let us be the kind of men and women that embrace your scourging as we pastor and lead, knowing that you love us? You're disciplining us to grow our depth of soul to look more like Jesus. May you strengthen today, God, the weary, the fearful, the downcast with the steadfast love and the eternal hope of the gospel. Spirit of God, make it real to heads and make it real to hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen.